0: Hello, and welcome to PwC's Accounting and Reporting podcast series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's hottest accounting issues. I'm Heather Horn, a partner in our national office, and I'll be your host today. In today's episode, we'll focus on the new credit losses standard, often referred to as CECL. We'll discuss some background on the standard, including its scope, and then talk about what it changed, as well as timing and best practices for adoption. With me today is Seth Drucker, a partner in our national office who's been working with our clients on adopting the standard. Seth was a fellow at the FASB who worked on implementation issues related to CECL, so he will bring an interesting perspective. With that background, let's jump into our discussion. Seth, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Now that calendar and public companies have made it through revenue and leasing, I know many of them are turning to the new credit losses standard, or as most people refer to it as CECL. Can you first tell our listeners what CECL stands for, and then also maybe talk a little about the scope of the new standard? Because I think CECL may not describe it all in this case, correct?
1: Yep. Uh, Thanks for having me, Heather. Um, That's right. So CECL stands for the Current Expected Credit Losses Approach and it's the FASB's new impairment model for instruments carried at amortized costs. When we think back to the financial crisis, there were some that criticized um, the incurred loss models of impairment recognition for delaying credit losses. So many believe that many institutions had credit losses that they knew were imminent, but they couldn't yet reflect those on a timely basis because they were not incurred. So the FASB started a project to rethink about the approach Uh, to impairment of financial assets and figure out if there are ways that they could recognize those losses earlier, have companies recognize those losses earlier.
0: Wait, so before you go on, you said this coming from the credit crisis, obviously that's more than 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So has this project been going on for that long or give us the time? Yeah, so I think
1: the FASB was tasked with taking this project on shortly after, right? And there were various iterations, outreach, exposure drafts, different models back to the drawing board. There was a period of thinking through things with the ISB and with their project that they were going on. So I think, yeah, it's fair to say the project has been going on for quite some time with various standard setting and due process.
0: Okay. All right. So go on. I think we're about to talk about <laughs> yeah. scope.
1: So um, I think the general objective of that, of the CECL models, like I said, to move away from an incurred loss model into more of a forward-looking expected credit losses model. Um, so the scope of the standard of the CECL standard is very broad, replaces many of the impairment models that exist today under US GAAP. So some of the things that it applies to, for example, are all financial assets measured at amortized costs. So things like loans trade receivables, held to maturity debt securities, also net investments in leases, and off-balance sheet credit exposures. Although AFS are available for sale debt securities are in scope of the new model, the CECL model does not apply to them. Instead, there's a separate impairment model that's applied to them, which will include some important changes from the AFS impairment model. Uh, It's important to note, though, that financial assets measured at fair value through net income, so derivatives, instruments applying the fair value option are not in scope of CECL, um, so they will not be applicable.
0: So wait, I'm going to pause you again. So you started with loans, and I think a lot of people have this perception that this only applies to banks, Mm and starting with loans, I think, in a way, reinforces that. So can you talk a little bit about just what type of companies this applies to?
1: Yeah, so it applies to all companies, both financial and non-financial services, and I think that's one of the biggest things that, as people take away from this podcast, is that non-financial services companies, and I think you started out by saying revenue, lease accounting, other things like that that they've been focused on really need to start to pay attention to this because there's been a lot of standard setting activity and this is something that applies to them uh, just as much as it applies to financial services companies.
0: Okay, good.
1: That's helpful. Other last thing I would just say is loans to entities under common control are also out of scope. Um and there have been some other clarifications that the FASB has made as well. But I think the biggest thing is that's financial assets measured at amortized cost.
0: Okay, so including receivables. Including basically.
1: receivables. Okay. Yeah.
0: Then let's move into our second topic, which would be what's really different here. And you kept saying this incurred cost versus expected loss. And I know that rolls off the tongue of many people, yep. but for other listeners, they're probably like, what's he talking about? Uh-huh. So start simple and give us some sort of overview of the key changes.
1: Yeah, so I think the biggest thing is that it, it takes a balance sheet approach for impairment. You recognize full lifetime losses that you come up with, whereas in, under incurred losses, you had impairment triggers that happened before you could recognize those losses. So today, once I get and put an asset on my books, I'm going to book a lifetime reserve that I come up with on day one and recognize that through my income statement, whereas under the previous guidance, or many versions of the previous guidance, you would have to wait until you hit a trigger and then you would recognize that loss. So I think that's the, the biggest difference um, where people are now taking those, the losses they expect over the life on effectively day one or two of when you would book that and then you would continue to true it up over time. So the point is to basically have the cecil reserve, the cecil reserve being the amount not expected to be collected, which ends up on your balance sheet having the amount that you do expect to collect. The standard requires the allowance to be calculated on the amortized cost basis of that asset. And like I said, it's it's forward-looking. So you can't just use historical evidence alone to predict um, what you think that reserve will be. You need to make adjustments for current conditions as well as reasonable and supportable forecast of future economic events. And I think reasonable and supportable is an important words there because that's been the big source of a lot of kind of angst activity. What does that mean? How do you think about it? Um, What do you come up with? And that's a big change because now companies, like you said, both financial and non-financial services have to think about what are reasonable and supportable expectations of future economic conditions, future expectations of that asset and they have to incorporate that into the allowance that they're going to book.
0: So basically, on the day I record something, I have to, and let's say it's like a, a long, something that's longer term. I have to think not only what historically a borrower or you know a payer of that type mm-hmm. how it would behave, but as well as like, well, is something going to happen in the economy? Right. Is something else going to happen that yeah. they wouldn't pay this?
1: Right. So I think what well, you really you focus on the reasonable and supportable forecast of, like you said that specific to that asset or groups of assets and macroeconomic factors. And then if you get to a point where you can no longer forecast reliably, or it's not reasonable and supportable, uh, you could revert to certain unadjusted historical loss information. But there's a lot of judgment around when you do that, how you do that. And that's kind of a big point that I think a lot of people are working through.
0: Okay. And then to the extent that I guess I have sort of shorter term, let's say trade receivables, then potentially, if I'm just looking 30, 60, 90 days, maybe there's less around the forecast and more around just my expected activity with that type of...
1: Yeah, I mean, I think obviously the longer time horizon, there's more complexity and more things to think about. I think what's important is that you do need to think about it, no matter if you have a shorter-term receivable or, and a longer-term asset, but that process will be different, and that that's kind of how, how people are thinking about it, depending upon the tenor, the duration, the complexity of the asset. And then I think also one of the things we'll get to is the sophistication, frankly, of the institution and what they can do. Because the guidance doesn't tell you that you have to use specific estimation approaches. So you could use a discounted cash flow or what's known as a DCF model or a non-DCF method, a loss rate approach, probability of default, loss given default, or other methods. And I think that's also something that regulators have highlighted that depending upon the institution, the type of product, whatever it might be, there's, it allows for judgment and flexibility of different modeling approaches. The other thing is that a big change is that CECL standard requires pooling when similar risk characteristics exist. So what that means is if you can pool your loans or other things, you need to pool them for evaluation purposes rather than looking at them on an individual loan basis. And that's an important thing that, especially those that aren't as familiar with the standard, is you're going to start with pools of loans or pools of, investments that you might be looking at or financial assets you might be looking at as opposed to individual. And only when you can't come up with pools would you look at them individually. So that's so, a, that's something different as well.
0: Yeah. So wait, let me ask about that. And again, probably coming from a more non-financial mm-hmm. perspective. So let's say I have maybe some major customers that I've evaluated mm. my allowances individually and then a lot of smaller ones that maybe historically i have pulled together. It sounds like what you're seeing is even for those larger individual ones, now I would say, okay, well, all those large ones would group together.
1: You'd have to try to see whether you had homogeneous risk characteristics to pool them. If they don't have like characteristics and you couldn't pool them, then then you might look at them separately. But the first approach, and this is why it requires work, you know, from a Operational systems accounting perspective is looking at can I pool these things, look at them together, and if I can't, then, then you go down that approach. Or once I've pooled them, if things change, which is possible, you might have credit deterioration or other things where then they no longer fit in the pools. You have you have to continually continuously monitor that. That's a big change for for many, especially those that aren't haven't traditionally focused on this type of methodology.
0: Yes, interesting. You know, we've had different guests on this podcast i'm talking about different types of new accounting standards and sort of a trend of you need to be have more than just the accountants involved and that's this sounds like the case here is like if i'm the accountant and i'm just sitting looking at my trade receivables again non-financial that probably is not going to give me enough information i need to like go talk to the credit and collection people and other people to understand this characteristic so then, Seth, as people are thinking about these pools and the risks and, as I said, trying to maybe get talk to the operational people, credit and collections people, what are some of the key things that they should be focused on?
1: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of you want to think about how you're going to come up with your pooling, what are the risk characteristics, especially if you haven't done, tracked your loans or other assets that way. Then I think you also want to think about what methodologies are you are going to use. So are you going to use a discounted cash flow approach? non-discounted cash flow approach, different probability default, loss given default, or loss rate approaches. Um, there are some that are, folks out there are saying they're still going to continue to use Excel models, right? And depending upon who you are and what assets you have, that could be, potentially be okay. And then I think you also want to think about how are you going to determine what that um, reasonable and supportable period will be? When do you revert to unadjusted historical information? What factors are you going to put in? Where are you going to get that data from? There are some that uh, more sophisticated institutions may have access to macroeconomic models, other things like that. And there are some institutions that may not. So they're talking about going out and buying that data, how they get comfortable with that data. So I think back to one of the earlier points you made is that this is one of the biggest changes kind of in the financial instrument space, not just financial services space, but it is accounting. It has operational considerations and IT considerations it has definitely finance and other considerations as well. So it's definitely a cross organizational standard. It's an accounting standard, but there's definitely a lot of knock on effects. And we've seen, like you said, the standard has taken many years to get to this point. And institutions, especially those that it's going to become effective for more sooner than others, have spent many years trying to implement it. So I think there's there's definitely been a lot of work there that's gone into it.
0: So then if I'm a company that's playing catch-up, I'm thinking I haven't spent many years. I guess we'll get to some best
1: practices. So I'll I'll hold
0: on that question. So can you give us an overview of the the key disclosures?
1: Yeah, sure. So like you said, I think there's no no standard that's complete without disclosures. So um, the disclosures related to credit losses are intended to enable those users of financial statements to really understand the credit risk inherent in the reporting entities portfolio. So how management monitors that risk, how they develop the estimate of expected credit losses, changes in that estimate that take place during the period. Um, And the biggest impact is that related disclosures to receivables are expanded to other in-scope financial assets. So it's really, it's more broad and kind of encapsulating all the different financial assets, receivables, loans, anything that's in scope, in particular of CISL, as we've talked about. I think the biggest thing or the first one that's kind of one of the biggest changes is is vintage disclosure. So for financing receivables and net investments and leases, um, PBE or public business entities have to disclose the amortized cost basis within each credit quality indicator by year of origination. So that's a mouthful. So like, what does that mean? I think what that really is getting at is one of the critiques during the financial crisis is that we wanted to know what vintage had problems. So if you had loans. Was it a 2003 loan, a 2004 loan, 2005 loan, which were the bad loans, right? So I think the intention of this disclosure is to help investors, users, and others understand where is the risk of credit losses sitting from that perspective. And that's really what the vintage disclosure tables are trying to get at. However, it is a big change to get this data, operationalize it, produce it, track it, all those things into these tables. I think the jury's still out on whether people think that you know it's going to be helpful or not, but that is a big requirement. And then you have other things, for example, like if I have a revolving asset that converts to something that's a terminal and has an actual maturity date, where does that go in this table? Because it was a revolving asset that could become a vintage at any point in time. So the fa- that's one of the questions that the FASBs answered. Things like that are some of the questions that have come up in TRG or transition resource group meetings or other what I would call forums where uh, folks in the industry are voicing some uh, operational implementation type questions. All entities have to provide quantitative and qualitative information about the credit quality of financial assets within the scope of CECL. So including amortized cost basis for each credit quality indicator. So then there's questions of what goes into amortized cost basis. And the definition of amortized cost basis was changed by the standard. So You have things like that. Then you also have a roll forward of the allowance by portfolio segment or major security type from period to period that you'll have. And then there's a variety of other disclosures. So aging analysis for past due receivables, any financial assets you put on a non-accrual, which assets you have under the PCD or purchase financial assets with credit deterioration model and then other things like that.
0: Okay, so clearly a lot to think about. Some of them probably more applicable to financial institutions. And again, trying to put my non-FS hat on. So if I'm just a company and I have receivables, let's say some past Mm -hmm. due, some current, I mean, are they expecting that those would be tranched? Or are those, you know, like, so here's my receivables from... You know, that are more than a year old, less than a year old, or is that really more specific to like a financial institution type of disclosure?
1: No, I think it's the I mean the aging analysis for past due receivables would be the receivables and how far off they're how long dated they're due or or how past due they are delinquent. Oh so if
0: they were due in thirty days, yeah. so if they're past due, they're yeah. on this.
1: Right. So you have like, you know, like you said, zero to thirty, thirty, sixty, sixty, ninety, et cetera. Yeah. The other the vintage disclosures are organized, you would organize them by you know, loans, receivables, and kind of the different vintages. So how companies will do that, there is some you know, discretion, I think, with how they'll do that. But the, the gist of it is kind of you would organize it by the way you've grouped your products. And then for the second one, the roll for it, it's portfolio segment. So is it loans and how you're grouping them? Or major security type, which also has a definition too. So I think people are going to try to roll it up higher levels unless it doesn't make sense, and then you have to start to drill down more.
0: It's sort of interesting because, and we've talked about this actually on this podcast before, that with the new revenue disclosures, there were some circumstances where maybe it didn't actually change things too much from like a revenue recognition point of view, but just using the new terminology, Mm -hmm. making sure you got the new disclosures right, um, was still very critically important. And this, it sounds like it may have some similar items where, okay, I might be listening and thinking, well, the type of receivables I have or the type of financial assets I had won't be significantly impacted from um, the credit loss that I'm recognizing, but making sure I comply with these disclosures is going to require some some shift. So
1: yeah, and I think the biggest thing is it's like you talked about again revenue leases. I know you had a prior podcast on hedging um, and things like that. So the it's really thinking about how do these standards apply to me, and making sure that you understand what, what's in scope, what's out of scope, and what do you have? Because I think that's one of the biggest things that we get a lot of questions on. I didn't know this applied to me. I didn't know I had these instruments or these assets, and I think that's a mistake you obviously don't want to make two years from now when you didn't realize that this applied to you.
0: Right. I know we've had prior webcasts and things, a list, and I can picture it. It's about 10 things long. So people really, to going back to the original Um, first topic, people really, I guess, need to start with what's in scope and then start to go down these paths. Okay, good. So then why don't we move into our next topic, which is when is this effective um, and can I early adopt?
1: Yeah, so early adoption is permitted for 2019 calendar year and companies, so obviously that's available now. I don't think we've heard of too many folks that are anxiously uh, anticipating early adopting the standard, but... I think the magic date is one for PBEs or public business entities that meet the definition of an SEC filer. So that's when that, it'll be effective for those calendar year-end companies, one If you're a PBE that does not meet the definition of an SEC filer, you get an additional year after that. And then all other entities have effectively two years from the PBE SEC implementation date, so 20, you know, 2022. So they truly actually gave you sort of three years, if you will, um, from the PBE SEC filers to the non PBE non SEC filers, it's a lot of words that they threw in there. Yeah. But um, so
0: three three it's kind of a staggered, adoption. yeah, which yeah. is unusual
1: because they usually don't do it that way. Um, but I think for this one, there was a lot of pushback. In fact, they even clarified the last one for 2022 because there were some that when they originally read the way that it was, the effective date was written, they really weren't getting a full year because you effectively needed to start at the beginning of the year. So they clarified that somewhat recently um, over the past year to basically say, no, we meant to give you non-PBE, non-SEC filers an extra year. So um, like I said, the magic date, I think, for is 1-1-2020 for the larger SEC filers. And those are companies that I think for the most part are pretty well on their way and have been really preparing for many years for this standard. I think they're just hoping that there are not many last-minute surprises in terms of any standard setting uh, or other things that would impact them, and then I think from there you start to go on to those companies that maybe haven't given quite as much thought or those that, like you said, are just thinking about this because they've really been focused on revenue and leasing depending upon the implementation timeline. So I think, the, again, one of the largest points is just assess what what the impact will be so you can come up with a plan for how this will apply to you and making sure you're thinking about it the right way. Obviously, if you, if you wait to the last minute, this is a massive standard, and it's not very quick to put together an implementation plan.
0: Right, I mean back to the point, even if you don't expect a huge impact, still a lot to think about. So when you were talking about the effective date and saying 1-1-2020, I think that's felt very far away and all of a sudden, it's actually not. 2020 is is soon. And so with that in mind, maybe, um, and especially for those companies who maybe haven't been, is on top of that. And just to clarify, you said all SEC registrants, if their calendar year end, will be January 1, 2020. Some of the other tranches get into if you're a PBE and not a registrant. Yeah. So
1: the first tranche is PBE, SEC filer, and then you have PBE, non-SEC filer, and then everybody else.
0: Okay, perfect. So let's assume you're in the first group, yeah. maybe haven't been spending a lot of time, or maybe you have. What do we kind of think about from a best practice perspective?
1: We've even been advising companies, and most of the companies that, that we know that are focusing on one one are forging ahead with their path. They've already determined the impact of the credit losses standard. If they haven't, they're starting to. Um, and implementing the model. And I would say they're just kind of pushing ahead, doing some parallel runs of uh, the current uh, incurred loss model, what they expect is going to happen starting one one twenty twenty, finalizing IT processes, anything else they might need. I think for the companies that aren't as geared up for one one twenty twenty, that's what I just said is probably what they should be doing, which is seeing if their current technology platforms support what they need to do, do they have the right data, do they need to engage, um, obviously with the correct understanding of specialists or experts for credit modeling, IT infrastructure, all those types of things. But like I said, for the 1-1-20-20 they're pretty far along with modeling approaches, um, parallel runs, dry runs, and different things like that. And I think for the other ones, it's really getting the scope, figuring out kind of the three legs of the stool, the accounting part of it, the operational, the IT, and kind of moving on from there.
0: Okay. So I know you mentioned the TRG. Can you just briefly touch on that, remind people what that is and, and what they should be looking for?
1: Yeah. So the TRG stands for Transition Resource Group, and, and there was one for the revenue standard. There was not one for leasing or um, the hedging standard. So it's kind of subjective whether the FASB board decides to have a transition resource group or not. There is one for the CECL standard. I think it's interesting. There was a lot of a number of issues, I think, that came about. I think some came to the level of, quote-unquote, TRG issues. Some did not. I think, believe there There have been three public meetings. As of now, we don't anticipate there being another one. At least we haven't heard. So really, that's a mechanism for implementation-type matters to be brought to a round table, if you will, of the FASB board, the staff, and then different people who represent industry groups as well as um, accounting firms to talk about them, propose different ideas, things that could be ways to solve some of the issues that are being presented. They're non-authoritative, so that the if there's anything comes out of that that needs to be put into the codification or memorialized somewhere, there's a process for that, but effectively it's a way to talk about implementation issues um, for some of the more complex standards that are out there.
0: Yeah, so, and I know with the leasing standard, we continue to see standard setting actually even recently, even mm-hmm. past the adoption date. I mean, do we expect anything like that with the CECL standard, or is this more now individual companies need to really dig in and, and start their work if they haven't already?
1: I don't think we expect there to be anything major at this point, at least. F- from what we've heard, from a FASB standard-setting perspective.
0: So it sounds like maybe a little more to come, but either way, it's time, and especially if you're in this first group of adopters, it's time to really focus in, scope, get your team together, and then start
1: the adoption. Yeah, and I mean, I think two other things. There have been... um, you know, over the past year, year and a half, there's definitely been focus on the impact that the CECL standard may have from a regulatory perspective and other things like that. And I think it's like I said earlier, we've been you know, telling people, listen, focus on the state. We have a standard that, and focus on implementing that. And if other things come out of that, that either change or affect or amend certain things and kind of you'll deal with that as it comes. But focus on amending the standard as is. And I know that not forgetting about SAB 74 disclosures, impact of recently issued accounting standards. On financial statements, both from a qualitative and quantitative perspective, is definitely something that you know we're seeing people focused on. And now you're into the quarter of 2019 quarters for 2019. Uh, prior to especially those one 112020 companies, is you know what are they going to say on SAB 74 in from a qualitative and quantitative perspective. So I know that you know folks are paying attention to that as well.
0: Good. Any last thoughts?
1: Uh, no, I think just continuing to monitor communications. You know, um, we'll plan to publish any updates, obviously. So hopefully people will take a look at those. Um, and just continue moving forward on implementation plans.
0: Great. Thank you. Thanks Thanks. for joining us today. Thank you. To our listeners, I hope you enjoyed that discussion and feel more ready to move forward with your CECL implementation. We'll keep you posted on any further developments. But in the meantime, if you'd like more information on the points Seth made today, please check out the show notes on cfodirect.com. To make sure you never miss an episode, Subscribe to our podcast series on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your content. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. I hope you join me here again next week for another Need to Know Now accounting topic. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved.